This is the Midweeks. It is great to be back, everyone. Thank you very much. It's my birthday, and I'm back on the Midweeks today because um, I finally have a computer again. I've been on a very long hiatus from the Midweeks because my computer died, which is what I did my recordings on, and it was not possible to simply make them out of thin air for posting. But I'm glad to be back. It is October 24th, and it's Election Day here in my hometown of Steinbeck. And so let's just think a little bit about Christians and politics. This is a really big question that Christians have actually been debating for about 1,700 years. And the issue really is this. On the one hand, we are people in the world, and we have jobs and families, and we inevitably live in some nation or another. On the other hand, we're people of the future. We're people who have our eyes set on the world to come and aren't living just for today. And we understand that Jesus Christ is the Lord over all and he is our sovereign and our master. And so we're in between these things. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. We live in today, but we know that today is not the end of it. Another thing that has made uh, the question of Christians in politics, Christians and politics interesting is that Christians have existed in almost every kind of a governmental relationship possible, from having emperors and fuhrers and party leaders um, try to eradicate the church and eradicate all Christians and widespread mass killings and persecutions, to having kings and queens of Holy Roman empires or Holy Roman uh, or, or Holy, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, um, way to go, uh, Charlemagne, to, you know, kings of England being crowned as the, the head of the church. And so we've done everything. We've done everything. And we are also uh, have done um, Christian democracies, Christian-inspired democracies. And so we've done everything. And we've also had people who just uh, quit on it and go off and form colonies and try to ignore that there is a political world around them. And so um, it's an interesting situation, especially where we're from. I'm not a Mennonite. I'm of Scottish background. But um, the Mennonite heritage is to think lowly of secular authorities or political authorities. But they're very, very, very involved in the local politics. In fact, all three of our potential mayors, by the time this is posted, maybe we'll know who one is, um, have Mennonite last names. And so this is where we're at. It's uh, uh, the heritage or the, the, of the local area has been non-political, but everyone's really involved in it now. And so what do we do? Well, one of the things is it's really good to kind of understand where you're at. And you can sit down and say, well, in Canada, we have a major Christian influence historically in our nation and in our politics. But recently it's been ejected quite severely through political actions, through changes in schooling, through culture shifts, we've become very, very secular. And so that the political environment is hostile, more hostile, more unaccepting, more just kind of dismissive uh, of um, blatant Christian influence or the Christian voice. It hasn't always been like that. For, For a long time, 
um, a pastor had uh, a place in the community like he does not now, a respected place. He was a voice of influence in the community and in the nation. Um, but we live in a democracy here in Canada, and so we have a vote. We might not always have a voice, but we always have a vote. So what do you do? And um, so I think the Bible teaches us that we should hold these tensions well. Just remembering that God is in control, and whatever happens in an election, this is not the end of it. And uh, we are looking forward to the return of Christ and his reign, but that we should be quite involved in our city uh, because we care about it. So, for instance, one thing, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of the book of Proverbs. I love the book of Proverbs, this book uh, of Solomon that God has given for his people, especially for, for leaders. Um, and there are whole chunks of Proverbs which are essentially about how to be in government. Um, I'm thinking of the collections of sayings that Hezekiah's men gathered uh, later on in the book, one of the later collections. It is really geared towards teaching people how to function in government with wisdom and so here's a book of the bible that is like equipping to be involved in politics how do you conduct yourself in the presence of a king how do you conduct yourself as one of his courtiers now i know this is an older setting but you know there's a lot of carryover still from any anywhere you have a government you have carryover um, it's different realms, different realms of influence, different realms of responsibility. But there's wherever there's government, people with authority to make choices, um, there's a lot in common. Another area that I think um, we could look to is, you know, from uh, First Timothy and just the teachings about eldership and deaconing. But particularly eldership, you know, the church was understood to have government. Um, it's born in the early stages of Acts, where the uh, apostles set apart some deacons to do the work so that other people can, can do the government. Um, there, there's, the church is called to have government. And it's not like it's completely uh, a different thing than what makes any other kind of government work. The call to have good character, the call to make wise decisions, the call to um, treat the people you're governing like they're a part of your family because that's the family is the first uh, political entity, if you want to call it like that. It's, the, it's a bunch of people having to, who have to live together, and some people have more authority and other people have more responsibilities, and how do you do this well? And First Timothy is about how to do that. And there's, uh, all the way through the book, it's, it's about government. It's about leadership. That's what Paul is giving Timothy, a treatise on how to govern the church. And though the church and a state are different things, and a church and a family are different things, there's a lot of carryover. And so the Word of God has a lot to say about how to govern and the importance of good government, the importance of order in a community. And so... As Christians, I think whatever kind of government we find involved in, if there is room for us to have influence, we should attempt to have that influence for the good of the people around us. And if there is, um, if you're in a democratic society like we are, and you get to have a vote about who should be ruling over you, and you have a choice to kind of pick the lesser of two evils or the lesser of three evils or, or somebody who doesn't appear to be evil, um, to be involved is, I think, the right thing to do under the wisdom of God, you know, prayerfully. And so my hope is that God will give us people of character who will live out that character. And even if he 
chooses something otherwise. We know that he's sovereign and he can use um, kings however he wants to. And that's something he's shown us as well through history, whether it's through a Nebuchadnezzar or through a pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, God is able to accomplish all he wants through whomever he accomplishes it through but it is to their benefit to be godly and to walk in the fear of the Lord. And it's to the, a nation's benefit for it to have godly character and to walk in the fear of the Lord. All right. Well, one of the things that having a long break has meant is that we have not talked about 1 Corinthians for a long time. And so I'd like to do that now. Let's kick back in with 1 Corinthians. We are looking at um, hardcore Christianity. And just as a reminder for me, maybe it's not a reminder for you, um, 1 Corinthians is a church for the 21st century church. It is a letter for us because they were dealing with so much of the stuff that we deal with now. What does a Christian church do when it's existing in a time with lots of wealth, lots of influence, and lots of different ideas running around. The Corinthian church was in Corinth, which was a, uh, a, a town with lots of transfer, uh, lots of culture, lots of the trade of ideas, and a lot of trade in general, which leads to people getting wealthy. And so they were dealing with lots of issues that we are. And we're in s- chapter 2, and essentially what Paul is trying to re- wrestle for is for people to really exalt the gospel And to see that Jesus is a God who came to earth in weakness. And so we are called to join him in his humility and weakness and not to be in loved and over with or overly influenced by worldly pride, worldly power, but instead see that God has kind of turned the world upside down through the gospel and to be ready to uh, live in a way that looks upside down to other people so that we can walk right side up with God. And so let's pick up from chapter 2 in verse 6. It says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person who is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we who have received, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept these things, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So what's going on here? 
this is how I understand it. Paul has just finished saying that when he came to Corinth, he didn't try to come and present himself as someone who's full of wisdom by um, debating like the debaters do or whatever. And he says, the main reason I just came in fear and trembling and just preaching the gospel to you is because God's wisdom expressed through the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, destroys the wisdom of the age. The Greeks want f philosophical power. Uh, he didn't mention them, but he could have said the Romans want military might. And the Jews want to see miraculous signs, power from God. But he says, Christ crucified turns all these things upside down. The idea of saving the world through somebody um, dying is foolish. The idea of the Messiah, of the Jews coming and being cursed by being hung on a tree is foolish. And so he says, why would any Christian want to set their hope on the wisdom of unbelieving man? Or the power of unbelieving man when God has nullified human efforts at power and wisdom by... Uh, saving the world and exalting Jesus Christ in his weakness and in his foolishness, in his death, by lifting him up and setting him on a throne through his curse to death, he has made human power to be nothing. But he doesn't want us just to say, okay, well, I guess Christians are called to be foolish and Christians are called to be dumb. No, he says, there is a wisdom from God. There's a wisdom of God that the world doesn't get because if they understood what God was doing, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. They never would have crucified Jesus if they understood that um, this carpenter or this um, tradesperson in Galilee was actually the son of God sent into the world. If they really understood what God was doing, they would have never crucified him. But be when he came, as he did, they so despised him and so rejected him that they crucified him. And through doing that, really ended up crucifying their own power and their own wisdom because their own power and their own wisdom didn't know God and couldn't save man. So he says there is a wisdom from God. God is wise, and there is a wisdom from God, but it's not something that people understand naturally. Instead, he says, what God prepared to do, to save a people for himself through the cross, to raise up a people of the weak and the foolish and make them the very children of God, this was a plan that nobody could have understood except that God has revealed it to us through the Holy Spirit. And then Paul engages here in this really interesting um, thought experiment about the Holy Spirit, which gives us a lot of insight into the character of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit for many people, many Christians, just like this great cloud that hovers about, maybe it's warm, gives you the warm fuzzies, um, but Paul here is gives us insight into the character of the Holy Spirit in a way that isn't really found in many other places, if anywhere at all. And he talks about how the Holy Spirit searches the depths of God. Now just think about that. The Holy Spirit is here depicted as like an Indiana Jones or a miner, an explorer who goes out and extends effort, maybe like a, a genius scientist in his laboratory. He's extending effort in order to understand, in order to know. And the thing that the Spirit of God expends its effort in order to know is the thoughts of the living God. And so he says, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Spirit wants to know about everything, everything in all creation, everything in all history. But he especially wants to know the depths of God, to know all his wisdom, to know all his thoughts, to know all his thinking. And then he says, 
who knows the depths of a man except for a man's spirit? So this is the connection between God and the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like the connection between me and my own spirit, which is like saying it is me, but it's also a part of me. How does that work? It sounds a little bit like the beginning of John where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How can something be God and be with God at the same time? Well, how can the Spirit be the Spirit of God, but also searching God? How can it be God it himself, and but also have a part of him search himself? Well, this just leads us to the doctrine of the Trinity, that the one true God, the only God, is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the Father of Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ, and is the Spirit of Christ sent into the world, which is a mystery that people do not understand, but we can um, accurately describe because of reading God's Word faithfully, and we can worship. But this, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, um, has searched out God and understands his thoughts and his plans, and the Holy Spirit is given to Christians so that we too can know God's wisdom. So that we, even though in the eyes of the world we look foolish and weak, we actually, in the eyes of God, can be strong and wise by knowing God's thoughts and agreeing that his ways are right. That what he's done in, G in Jesus is strength, is wisdom, is glorious and not foolish like the world sees it. And we understand this because the Holy Spirit has taught us. So this is connects with the doctrine of illumination, the idea that God helps people, helps his children to understand the word of God, to understand the ways of God. It is God himself who gives us insight into God. And this comes from this passage here, that um, we understand Jesus not by human wisdom, but by a wisdom taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things by spiritual means, meaning we, in, we understand what God has done by the Holy Spirit. We understand the gospel with the help of the Holy Spirit. We understand what the Word of God really means, centered around Christ, centered around His glory through the cross. We understand this by the Holy Spirit actually working in us. And Paul goes on to say um, later on in this, speaking of like verses 15 and so, he says, this wisdom is so from God that if you understand it, you, can't, you aren't actually able to be judged by the world. If you've been taught by the Holy Spirit what is true, what unbelieving person can actually judge you? What unbelieving person can actually hold a criticism against your understanding, your wisdom, if you've been taught by God the truth about Christ and they don't understand? All right, so how does this apply to us? Um, I don't know if there's ever been a time where we are so inundated, so um, assaulted by so many differing viewpoints about the world. Like just because of the internet even, you can you know, spend an hour and hear a dozen different viewpoints about God and the nature of human beings and what's right and wrong. Um, you could hear a thousand even. Um, and here's the question. Which viewpoint is taught by the Spirit of God? Which attempt at wisdom actually comes from the Spirit of God, and it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's understanding that Jesus dying for sin and rising from the grave was not an embarrassment, was not a fiasco, was not just some ancient stupid myth. Um, it is the actual wisdom of God, the salvation of God, the rescue of God, the love of God, the power of God, and it came to the world in weakness and apparent foolishness so that everything that we treasure as strong and weak can be exposed to be not truly weak. I mean, not truly strong. Can be exposed to be not truly wise so that we'll turn away from it 
and trust in the living God himself and trust in the spirit of God sent into the world and to trust in, the, in Jesus Christ. So this is what it means at the very end where it says, we have the mind of Christ. It means by the Holy Spirit, we actually understand what Jesus was thinking and doing when he went to the cross, how it was a good thing that he, he died and rose from the grave and went back to his father, how this is wise and good, and how we find our way in the world and our part in this drama that we're playing by loving the wisdom of God in the cross, by embracing the weakness and the foolishness of the cross, the apparent weakness, apparent foolishness, understanding that ultimately this is God's work of strength in us and his wisdom in the world, and by saying yes to Jesus. All right, so I think we are done for now. Uh, Be blessed, and may the Lord be with you.